This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go. How are you? Yeah, we have not had a chance to speak since Halloween, and um, I'm getting a lot of emails. People want to know uh, if you uh, haven't been following this little drama. I, uh, my twin boys, Zachary and North, uh, I mentioned that it was sort of up in the air up until several weeks ago whether North, uh, one of the, uh, the twins, would be allowed to go out trick-or-treating. Uh, and alas, uh, poor little guy had his trick-or-treating card yanked. It was a performance issue at uh, at school. And uh, so he had to stay in. I took Zachary out trick-or-treating north. Uh, anyway, the, the mighty Aphrodite made a nice Halloween for him at home. He got to dress up. He got to shell out uh, candy. Uh, and she made this. It was still a bitter pill, you know, for the little guy. But he took it like a trooper, I have to say. He took his punishment uh, very well. But he, um, the mighty Aphrodite made a nice Halloween for him at home. She, uh, she cooked a special Halloween dinner, which has become sort of a Serret family tradition now. She makes something called bloody eyeball soup. And we, I actually uh, posted some pictures, or a picture, in the photo section on my Twitter, at Richard Serret, if you want to go and uh, check that out. Uh, but I've been receiving so many emails about the bloody eyeball soup, people wanting the recipe. And, you know, I'll, I'll try to to, uh, to uh, pry that out of the mighty Aphrodite, but I don't know. It's She may uh, she may be a little hesitant to give that up. Anyway, uh, the, the, the photo is, again, on the Twitter at Richard Serrett. I also posted this, and, and no shortage of these types of stories, as we approach November 22nd, of course, the 50th anniversary of uh, JFK's assassination. Lee Harvey Oswald's widow, Marina, convinced he did not kill JFK and thinks her phone is still bugged. This was uh, uh, printed in the, uh, the Mirror newspaper over in, over in England. The widow of John F. Kennedy's alleged assassin believes her husband was innocent but lives in fear of being killed herself. Fifty years ago, a gunshot rang out and Marina Oswald was left as a young widow with two young children. But she got little sympathy in a grieving nation rocked by the death of its beloved president. Her dead husband was one of the most reviled men in history, JFK assassin Lee Harvey Oswell. And half a century later, her haggard face and still fearful eyes show she has never been able to shake off the curse of November 22, 1963. 
Since her Soviet defector husband was blamed for killing John, President John F. Kennedy that day in Dallas, Russian-born Marina has lived the life of a near recluse, enduring suspicion, hatred, and even death threats from people who believe she was, co- she was a, his co-conspirator in a KGB plot. But as the 50th anniversary of the tragedy approaches, Marina, now a 72-year-old grandmother, has emerged from the shadows and is pictured in public for the first time in 25 years, shopping at her local Walmart. Long remarried and living in a rural Texas town just 20 miles from Daly Plaza, where Kennedy's brains were blown out, Marina Oswald Porter is said to be in poor health and struggling to cope with international interest in the uh, anniversary. She originally told the Warren Commission investigating the assassination that she, was, that she thought her 24-year-old husband was guilty of shooting the president. But after reading some of the 40,000 books and conspiracy theories about the shooting, she changed her mind and, like the majority of American citizens, now believes in a much more complex assassination conspiracy and cover-up. Well, obviously, one of the books that Marina Oswald uh, Porter uh, either did not read or was not moved by was an epic tome that came out in 2007 by famed Charlie Manson prosecutor and author Vincent Bugliosi. His book, Reclaiming History, the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, uh, weighed in at something like 1,600 pages plus a, a, a CD-ROM, which added another 600-plus pages of endnotes. Now, that book was sort of seen as a, uh, a shot across the bow of many assassination researchers, my next guest included. Uh, not only did Bugliosi sort of prop up the official Warren a commission report uh, and, uh, you know, again, fixed blame squarely uh, with Oswald. Uh, Bugliosi also went on to say that this whole sort of uh, Kennedy assassination industry, I think as he called it, uh, is to blame for the way that Americans now sort of view their government and this malaise that we find ourselves in, this lack of, of, of trust for authority and so forth. Then we move ahead to earlier this year when Playtone, a production company in Hollywood, uh, which is founded by Gary Getzman and Tom Hanks, no less, uh, purchased the rights of Bugliosi's Reclaiming History and made it into a historical drama entitled Reclaiming Parkland, which sort of recounts the chaotic events that occurred following uh, President Kennedy's assassination. And as I say... Produced by Playtone's Tom Hanks, Gary Getzman, and Bill Paxton. And it sort of weaves together the perspectives of a handful of ordinary individuals suddenly thrust into extraordinary circumstances. The young doctors and nurses at Parkland Hospital, Dallas's chief of the Secret Service, an unwitting cameraman who captured what became the most famous movie in, home movie in history. Well, in response to, reclaim, uh, in response to a Parkland... Um, Assassination researcher James D. Eugenio, uh, who's been uh, with us for months now in our ongoing JFK series, has put together his response not only to Bugliosi's reclaiming history, but to this docudrama, this historical drama film, Parkland. And his book, his latest, is called Reclaiming Parkland. Uh, And it's a great pleasure to have James DiEugenio back on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, James. How are you? Good evening. First of all, I have to say, uh, I'm I'm absolutely 
um, amazed how you were able to pull this book together so quickly. The theatrical release for Parkland came out in October, barely, uh, absolutely, like I think exactly one month ago today. Uh, went into production, I think, earlier this year, maybe in January. How did you pull your book uh, together so quickly? Well, it, it wasn't easy. <laughs> I was working uh, all summer, and I was working like 15-hour days. In other words, I would get up, have a cup of coffee, you know, maybe a slice of toast, sit down in front of my computer, and I would stay there. I'd wake up about 7, and I'd stay there all day. I'd go out for a little bit of lunch, maybe, uh, you know, a can of soup at night, and I'd work to about 9 o'clock at night, and I did that for about three months. All right, and now, once you're organized, one of the keys, I think, to writing is... Once you're organized, once you have all the material you need, you can pull off something like this. But a lot of this stuff, I have to admit, I pulled off. See, the Internet is such a revolution because instead of having to go to libraries, you can just search for some of this stuff and then download the documents, and, and that's how you write it. And that was, that was very, very, it's very, very, I couldn't have done it without without that. Right. Okay. And of course, you've already, you know, over the last, you know, 20, 20 plus years, you've already done, mm-hmm. you know, much of the research. I have to yeah, ask but you I this. I have though. to say, though, yeah. part three of the book, right, which is about the CIA in Hollywood. Yes. That's, I had no, I had no idea what I was getting into there. Okay. I mean, I, I, I had no idea that that kind of stuff existed. I, to me, that's probably the most interesting part of the book. Well, listen, we, I, want to, I want to get into that, but I have to ask you this first of all. So Bugliosi's Reclaiming History comes out in 2007, late right. 2007, I believe. Uh, and so then they, uh, Playtone, Tom Hanks, they, they, they buy the rights to this book and, and make this historical drama Parkland. But I guess my question would be why wait until Parkland comes out, which really bears little resemblance to Bugliosi's book? Why not write sort of this response to – to uh, Reclaiming History in 2007? I did do some of it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 um, me and about seven other people wrote critiques of Reclaiming History right. when it came out. Right, I'm just thinking okay. in terms of the book, you know. Right, but, and, but I, I, I expanded it and rewrote it for, thi- for, this, for this actual book. Okay. All right, so don't, but believe me, I, I was on the radio uh, blasting Bugliosi way back when, when, when the book came out. Because I, you know, as I write in the, in the book, re, that book, part, uh, um, Reclaiming History, is what you call an argument by intimidation. In other words, most people look at a book 1,642 pages long, and they go, wow, this must be a really impressive book. How could a book that big not be any good? Well, I hate to tell you, you know, uh, Heaven's Gate was the biggest movie ever made up to that time. Uh, the, the Titanic was the biggest ocean liner ever made at that time. You know, bigger is not better, okay? It's just bigger sometimes. Right. And so what reclaiming history was, if you ask me, was essentially Gerald Posner times three. Okay. You have to explain that, that to our listeners, what, what you mean by that. Okay, well, Gerald Posner wrote an, uh, an absolutely terrible book called Case Closed back in 1993. 
This was clearly designed as a reply to all the ruckus stirred up by Oliver Stone's film, JFK. Right. And that book is about 750 pages long. Well, Posner's book was thoroughly trashed, you know, by many people, and his reputation, of course, has collapsed. He's been exposed as a plagiarist and involved um, in what is a possible shell company to take um, um, royalties away from Harper Lee. Okay. Well, Bugliosi essentially is Posner on steroids. You know, reclaiming history is essentially case closed, except three times bigger. You know, uh, there's very, if you ask me, there is very little difference between the two books. Okay, reclaiming history is a little bit slicker written. Okay, um, but that's about it. Well, okay. you know, you mentioned in, in part one of, of your of your book that you you have some grudging admiration for Bugliosi. Uh, I mean, obviously a successful lawyer and a pretty good writer, a pretty good author. Um, mm-hmm. but then you'd sort of delve into sort of, I guess, the, 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 the motivation. Let's start with the sort of the genesis of, of this book, Reclaiming History, uh, before we okay. get into Parkland. As I explained in part one, Reclaiming History uh, began really as a British television show called On Trial. This was supposed to be a pseudo-trial of Lee Harvey Oswald, and the production featured Bugliosi as the prosecutor and Jerry Spence as a defense attorney. Okay, listen, we're going to take a time out, uh, James. The music is uh, coming up here. We're going to step away for a moment, come back. James DiEugenio is with us. The book is Reclaiming Parkland, his answer to Tom Hanks' dramatic or uh, history uh, drama, Parkland, which came out just a month ago, and of course, by extension, Vincent Bugliosi's Reclaiming History, which sort of props up the Warren Commission and uh, blames, lays the blame for uh, Kennedy's death squarely on the shoulders of Lee Harvey Oswald and Oswald alone. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, welcome back. It's uh, our seventh installment of JFK Connecting the Dots with assassination researcher James D. Eugenio. Uh, and previously, we've been uh, working through his... Uh, tome, uh, Destiny Betrayed, uh, now in its second edition. The original uh, book came out uh, over 20 years ago. Uh, but tonight, we're uh, taking a look at James Eugenio's latest book, which is entitled Reclaiming Parkland, Tom Hanks, Vincent Bugliosi, and the JFK Assassination in the New Hollywood. This in response to Playtone's uh, release of uh, an historical drama entitled Parkland, and uh, that was sort of loosely based on Vincent Bugliosi's 2007 book entitled Reclaiming History, the Assassination of President Kennedy, which again supported the official sort of findings of, of the Warren Commission. Now, uh, James, we were talking about sort of the genesis of, of Bugliosi's Reclaiming History. This started out as a, a, a British cable TV show in which uh, sort of a mock trial in which Bugliosi plays the prosecutor uh, and on the on trial, of course, is is um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Except, except, of course, Oswald was dead. Right. You know. So, as Mark Lane said, uh, a requirement of a trial is a live client. Well, this one started off with none at all. Okay, which was a very serious problem. It's one of the many problems that I deal with in my critique. So, what happened was. 
that because, as I critiqued the trial, everything was tilted for the prosecution. Okay, so when uh, the verdict came in as a guilty verdict for Oswald, Bugliosi did something very, very unwise. He actually took that verdict seriously, all right? And he now started to write this book, which was originally titled Final Verdict. Well, two things happened that made the book into the giant, colossal piece of uh, paper that it is today. Number one, Oliver Stone made his movie JFK, all right? And number two, that movie caused the creation of the Assassination Record Review Board. So Bugliosi now decided to wait for both of those things to blow over. And then, of course, he wrote a couple of books in the interim. So this book was not published until 2007, all right? And that's what took so long, all right? Um, the book, like I said, is essentially... Uh, an argument by intimidation, all right? He tries to pile it on so that it looks and sounds very impressive. Once you analyze it, as I did, it's not a very impressive effort at all, okay? And so the middle part of my book is essentially a, a critique, a very long and pointed critique of reclaiming history, all right? And... um well, one of the things I think people were – one of the things people were sort of intimidated by perhaps, uh, James, and why it was maybe you know, embraced by the mainstream media was uh, Bugliosi's record as an L.A. county prosecutor. He, he would boast that he had won felony convictions in something like 105 of the 106 jury trials that he was involved with. Right, right. Okay, and so I actually go into that. Now, unfortunately, um, that opening chapter in which I discussed – in detail, Bugliosi's career, all right, which I thought I was very proud of that chapter because I dug up a lot of interesting things that nobody had ever published in a book before, okay? Um, the publisher decided to cut that chapter in half, but, but if you go to the ctka.net website, you'll see a review of my book, and then at the end of that review, you'll click, and you can go to the parts of the book that were cut out by the publisher. In other words, you can find the original form of that chapter, which I'm, I'm very proud of, all right? Uh, because what I did in that chapter was essentially discuss Bugliosi's entire career, which takes... It takes the form of three different, um, actually there's three different careers inside of that life. He's 77 years, 78 years old now. The first career was, of course, as a prosecutor, which I discussed, and which I discussed in detail the whole Tate LaBianca thing, all right, but which made him famous. In other words, the reason I spent a lot of time on Tate LaBianca was simply because Without Tate LaBianca, nobody would have ever heard of Vincent Bugliosi. Right. This is the guy that sent Manson to prison. Right. And so, in other words, he would have been just another of those 450 lawyers, okay, uh, in the L.A. 
County office. All right. Now, secondly, I went into his three drives for public office. Bugliosi ran twice for L.A. District Attorney. He ran once for California Attorney General. He lost all three races. The first race was very close. I think he only lost that race for L.A. District Attorney by something like 12,000 votes. It was a very close race. And then I went ahead, he went ahead, once he couldn't win public office, uh, riding the uh, coattails of the smashing success of his book on Tate LaBianca called Helter Skelter, which to this day is the number one true crime best-selling book. Then he became an author. And I give him credit for writing some good books. Helter Skelter is not one of them. But he did write a, a good book on the Paul M. Jones case, No Island of Sanity. Uh, he did write a good book on the 2000 vote heist in Florida. Um, um, that was that was I thought uh, that was a very good book, a very good polemic called The Betrayal of America. And he wrote a fairly decent book on Iraq, the persecution, the prosecution of George Bush for murder. Okay. Um, so he has had, he's written some good books, all right? Um, now, he's also become kind of like a commentator, a guest commentator. So therefore, the one reinforces the other, okay? Um, and so all of that is in that chapter. And like I said, they cut that in half. I was very proud of that chapter. Okay, but like I said, you go to ctka.net website, you look at the review of my book, and at the bottom, click, and you'll find the, expurg the expurgated chapters. Now, one of the things I should say, something that took me by surprise, which is one of the highlights of that chapter. I had never read Helter Skelter before I wrote this book. I'm probably one of the very few people in America who didn't read it. Um, I was kind of very surprised when I read the book because I had all kinds of problems with the presentation of the book, all right? I don't know how much you know about the Tate LaBianca case. Uh, a little but, bit. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, a fan of true crime I, like you. I didn't read the book, uh, so that's two of us anyway. But, I, you know, uh, I, uh, I have, uh, I've done shows on the, on the, uh, on the Tate LaBianca murders and, and uh, on, on Manson, a number of shows. Well, you, you, you understand that Helter Skelter is mythology? All right. I'll, let's, uh, let's explore oh, that a little bit. Oh, you didn't know that? See, there's, there's about... See, when I read the book, I, you know, whenever I read a nonfiction book, I always have a notepad next to me. And if something's troubling to me, I'll write it down. Well, I found myself doing that on almost every 10 pages of this book. It, didn't, it just didn't come together. It didn't make sense to me. So I said, am I the only one who feels like this? So I then went to various websites, thank God for the Internet, and I found out there's one called, you know, um, Cello Drive. There's one called the official Tate LaBianca blog, okay, et cetera. There, and you can look them up. And I found out I'm not the only one who feels like this. There's a lot of people out there who think Helter Skelter is a myth. And I have to say, uh, that's what I wrote about, the myth of Helter Skelter. 
Okay, it's it's not Bugliosi's book is not the way it happened, especially dealing with the motive for the crimes, and and that's what that came to the conclusion about that. And then I recently found an author, another an unpublished author, who spent many years researching that case. He had found the uh, the uncensored version of that first chapter online. He got in contact with me, and I met him the other night. And uh, he came to the same conclusion after doing all the research. So in other words, uh, if, if Bugliosi can't get the story straight on, on the uh, Tate-LaBianca murders, and he's the prosecutor in the case, how can we trust right. him in his handling of the JFK murder? Well, see, that, that's exactly why that first chapter was so important. Because the argument I was trying to make is, was this. Bugliosi might be a very good lawyer, okay? And he probably is a very good lawyer. But... He's not a very good investigator, okay? And there's a difference between the two, okay? You can be a really, really good lawyer, but if the investigative materials that you're working with are not true, are not genuine, are not honest, there's going to be a miscarriage of justice, okay? And so that, that was the argument that I was trying to make, you know, right? And that's what I did make, right? And so... Um, I simply came to, well, let, let's, let's just go through a couple points, which I think most people should know about that case. First of all, Charlie Manson didn't kill anybody, okay? Uh, he didn't kill anybody at the Tate home. He didn't kill anybody at the La Bianca home, all right? Then the argument is that somehow he controlled these people and right. doing these things, okay? The problem with that is that if you examine the timeline, Manson was not even in Los Angeles eight of the last nine days leading up to the night of the murders. He was down in San Diego, and he drove up to Big Sur. Okay? How can you control people when you're not even there? All right? One, there, in my, when I, after I was doing, after I studied this, I came to the conclusion that the, the true motive for the crimes were twofold. Okay? Number one... It was a drug burn, at the, at, especially at the Tate House, okay? Number two, another motive was the, co the copycat murders, okay? Because one of the Manson gang, a guy named Bobby Bioso, had committed a murder a few weeks previous. This was the murder of Gary Hinman, a guitarist and a mescaline dealer, all right? And he had left a panther claw there, okay, at the house, all right? Because he was trying to blame the murder on the panthers, the black panthers, which Dan Miller was associated with. This is how all those funny symbols got in to the Tate and LaBianca home, okay? It was a carryover from the Hinman murder, all right? All right? And so that is the conclusion I came to. If you take a look at the uh, the doctor's testimony of the drugs that were on the scene at the Tate house, there's about five different types of drugs in all kinds of amounts, okay, on the scene. Plus, two of the people, Abigail Folger and Fikowski, had ingested SAS, which is the forerunner to ecstasy, okay? You know, so I went into all this 
Okay, that which which Bugliosi more or less ignores in his book. You know, much to the detriment of, I think, what the true story was. Okay, listen, okay. I, I I don't want to spend too much time. I mean, I know it's important in terms of uh, sort of establishing uh, the the credibility or lack thereof of, of Bugliosi in writing the book on right. JFK. But w- what puzzles me is this movie Parkland uh, and Tom Hanks' association with it. First of all, I mean, they could have made this this book, and we'll talk about this when we come back, but... The, the movie, from what I understand, really bears little or no resemblance to the book. I mean, it's it's a, an historical drama. It doesn't delve into sort of the the, uh, the conspiracy uh, issues at all. It is sort of towing the party line. But I'm wondering why Tom Hanks got involved with Bugliosi and 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 why they need they felt they needed this book to make a movie like Parkland. We'll discuss that when we come back. James DiEugenio is with us. His new book is Reclaiming Parkland. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back to our ongoing series on the JFK assassination as we uh, approach the 50th anniversary just a few weeks away. And this is uh, episode 7 with our assassination researcher James D. Eugenio. And his latest book is entitled Reclaiming Parkland, Tom Hanks, Vincent Bugliosi, and the JFK assassination in the new Hollywood. And I, I asked you before the break, um, w- the, the, why did Playtone feel that they needed, uh, and I'm talking about Tom Hanks, feel they needed Bugliosi's book to make this movie, because I... I it, was, it was, as I explained in the book, it wasn't Hanks. I'm convinced that if it wasn't for Paxton, Playtone would have never purchased the book. Bill Paxton, okay? right. The actor, yeah, right. And he's very good friends with Hanks and Goatsman, Gary Goatsman, who run Playtone. And I explain the story here how Paxton was born in the area, right? And he actually, as a young boy, saw Kennedy the morning that he was going to be killed after the breakfast in Fort Worth, come out and give his famous parking lot speech. And um, then he went home. Then he heard Kennedy was killed, you know, and like many of us, he never really got over it, okay? And so... He was in Dallas for a film festival, happened to wander over to the Sixth Floor Museum. And with the help of the museum, he went ahead and found a picture of himself, okay, that morning in the crowd. So he then, around this time, Bugliosi comes out with his book, all right, and that's the genesis of the movie. Paxton picked up the book brought it to Hanks, Hanks bought the book, all right? And then, and this is something that's not really clear. It was originally slated as a 10-part miniseries. Right. All right? Somehow, that never took off. In the book, I theorized that it might be because the Pacific his World War II series went wildly over budget, okay, and did not get anywhere near the ratings that Band of Brothers did, okay? It went, like, twice what Band of Brothers was, but yet got about half the ratings that Band of Brothers did. So I theorize, and I'm not sure this is the case, but I think it might be, you know, that Playtone was not hot to go ahead and have another 10-part miniseries, you know, that could be very expensive, you know. 
So they decided to do a the abridged version of Bugliosi's book. See, when Reclaiming History did not do very well at the bookstores, it was then reissued as something called Four Days in November, which is essentially a chronicle in novelistic form of the days before and the days after the assassination. And so that is what they chose to adapt into this movie, Parkland, four days in November. And that's what it ended up. So you're saying that the Tom Hanks, uh, I mean, he, he just saw this as a as a as an opportunity to make a, a film about uh, Dallas. But while it doesn't necessarily sort of venture into some of the conspiracy uh, theories, you, you're you're sort of adamant that it doesn't matter. It's still basically propping up the Warren Commission and the official yeah, there, version. There's no doubt about that. Anybody who's seen the movie, and unfortunately, the movie didn't play very long. I think it only played. Um, how long did it play up there? Two weeks? It actually uh, um, it debuted at the Toronto Film Festival here. Oh, um, okay. Did you see it there? I did not, no. Okay. Well, it was only in the theaters here. It was one of the biggest bombs of recent years. It was out of the theaters in two weeks. The night I went to see it, there were four people in the audience. Okay. And uh, it, it actually grossed less than a million. In fact, I predict the re-release of JFK which is coming up in about 10 days, will probably do more money than what Hanks' uh, Parkland did. Now, having said that, the movie was pretty boring, I thought. It was essentially a chronicle, the Warren Commission. You know, it's essentially focused on what happened at Parkland Hospital, number one, um, what happened with the, at the FBI headquarters, Okay, uh, the whole thing about Oswald coming in a couple weeks before, you know, complaining about s- supposedly Jim Hosty harassing his wife. It dealt with Abraham Zapruder, okay, uh, and the taking of his famous uh, super uh, regular film and the processing, and that was then purchased uh, by Life magazine. And the last part of the story dealt with... Um, Oswald's mom and brother Robert. Okay, and those are the, and one of the problems with the film is that those four strands of the story don't go together. They don't fit into each other. It's not like Oliver Stone's film, where every strand of the story is mo- is layered into a mosaic and culminates in a powerful climax of the movie. It's not like that at all the stories are essentially separate from each other. So there's really no big dramatic tension, you know, uh, to the movie. It just doesn't knit together very well. You know, and then, of course, there's problems with the presentation. There's a review of the film on, on our website, Sitka.net by Philip Sheridan, our movie reviewer. All right. And, you know, and there are some liberties taken, uh, you know, with what most people would consider the facts. You know, listen, we're um, we're going to we're going to take another time out here. When we come back, though, I'd like to get into what you learned in researching for this book, your book, Reclaiming Parkland, about sort of the connection uh, between the CIA and Hollywood and how they sort of shape the message, because the the uh, subtitle of your book is the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. uh, Sorry, the is about the the new Hollywood, Tom Hanks uh, and Gary Goetzman and the new Hollywood as it pertains to, I guess, how these 
these treatments of JFK uh, are, are, are produced. So we'll, uh, we'll get into that when we come back. James D. Eugenio with us here on The Conspiracy Show, back with more in a moment. Stay with us. And uh, just a few moments remain with James D. Eugenio. His new book, again, is entitled Reclaiming Parkland. Tom Hanks, Vincent Bugliosi, and the JFK assassination in the new Hollywood. Interesting subtitle. What do you mean by the new Hollywood as it pertains to JFK? Well, this was one of the most fascinating aspects of the research I did on this book. Because as I said earlier, I had no idea. The last part of the book is completely original. And... I discovered a couple of very interesting things that, in my opinion, very few people know about, but yet impact our daily lives in the sense they dictate what we watch in the movie theaters and what we watch on our TV screens. So let me take, first of all, Chase Brandon, a guy named Chase Brandon. Yep, entertainment liaison for the CIA. Right. Around 1996, the CIA decided to set up its own entertainment liaison office in California. Chase Brandon is a first cousin of Tommy Lee Jones, and I think that had something to do with him getting a job. He'd been a 25-year member of the clandestine service. His job... And he was very explicit about it. And then I put some quotes in the book to prove how explicit about it he was. His job was to change the image of the CIA as presented in films and television. He was very, very upfront about what he was there to do. And as I write in my book, whatever you think of what his job was, and personally... I don't think the CIA should be doing that stuff. I don't think they, I don't think they should have anything to do with the expression of art, artistic endeavor in films at all, period. But, unfortunately, they do. They have that option. Whatever you think of that, there's no doubt in the, in the world, from the evidence I put in the book, that Chase Brandon, as I say, moved the mountain. He completely changed the image of the CIA as it is presented in television and films. If you recall, you know, JFK, uh, Air America, Three Days of the Condor, those kind of movies used to be pretty common, you know, a brutal, honest depiction of what the CIA really was, you know, like in Air America, the whole thing about the drug dealing. Okay. Sure. Coming out of, you know, uh, out of the, all the information that came out of the church committee and so forth about right, some of the dirty right. tricks. Absolutely. Yeah. Three Days of the Condor is about an overthrow attempt inside the agency. We all know what Stone's JFK movie was about. All right. Well, Chase Brandon was determined to completely reverse that. And he did. Okay. And he, there's no question about it. There is no... In fact... As I write in the book, not only did he turn that around, that image around, he got these people to do counterintelligence programs for him. And I explain what I mean by that in the book. He was actually writing scripts with messages in the scripts that he wanted to get to the terrorists. 
so they would do things he wanted them to do. Could you give me an example? Okay, in other words, he wanted in there was a, used to be a TV show called The Agency, right? Which was a glorification of the CIA, you know, in its battle against terror. And the guy who was a producer of the show, a guy named Breckner, worked very closely with Chase Brandon, and he would actually bounce ideas around them with them. Well, Chase Brandon suggested, why don't you create a scene in which we have a biological detection service where we can spot terrorists coming in the airports? And Breckner said, you don't have that, do you? And Chase Brandon says, well, no, but they don't know that. Okay, so in other words, he was trying to do a counterintelligence program, you know, against terrorists through this TV series. Okay? Mm. That's how in bed these guys were with the CIA. You know? And so that's what Brandon was in that office, if I remember correctly at the top of my head. I think it was 1995 to 2006 or 2007, around 11 years, around 11 years. And then he had a successor, a guy named Paul Barry, who was only there a year and a half, okay? And they they disposed of the office. And the guy, a CIA lawyer said, we, we decided to dispose of the office because we didn't need it anymore. We had developed such great contacts in movie land that people were now coming to us. So in other words, Brandon had been so successful at doing what he did that the CIA had created what it always wants to create, that is a self-sustaining program that they don't have to pay for anymore. You know, that's, how, that's what a great job he did. One has to he wonder then, then went, if, if that's the case and given that climate, if the CIA now is so firmly sort of ensconced in Hollywood and part of the movie-making process, do you think Oliver Stone would be allowed to make JFK today? I, I doubt it. I don't think so. And in fact, in, in the book, I talk about David Talbot's unsuccessful attempt to get Brothers made into a movie. You know, he did a very good book called Brothers a few years back. It was all set up to go in Hollywood, and it never panned out. You know? Instead, we get a piece of crap like Parkland. Okay? And with Tom Hanks, as I explained in the book, is, you know, very close to the Pentagon, very close to the CIA very close to the White House, you know. And that, I had that one chapter in the book called, you know, where Washington meets Hollywood. And I outlined how close people like Spielberg, people like Hanks are to the White House, you know. I mean, everybody knows about the whole, the whole travesty of Michelle Obama presenting the Best Picture Oscar last year to Argo, all right. Another well, bit of myth-making, yeah. What very few people know about is a few months previous to that, at the Golden Globe Awards, uh, Bill Clinton presented Lincoln. Okay? And that got me thinking, and I delved into the whole thing. And Bill Clinton is so close to Spielberg that when Clinton goes to the West Coast, he stays at Spielberg's house. That's how close they are. That I did not know. That's interesting. Yeah. See, and so, and I, and I make the argument in the book, I go, in my opinion, and I, I go, I went into this in, in some depth, you know, 
this has created the tyranny of the two-party system in, in the United States, okay? Because, you know, after Clinton, there was Obama, and Spielberg and Hanks are as close to Obama as they were to Clinton. They think he's the cat's meow, you know? And I, and I said, I, I wrote in the book, well, how can we get any serious movies about Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, or Martin Luther King, if these guys think Bill Clinton and Barack Obama are great people? I mean, the mentality just isn't there. Okay? But Oliver Stone is working on a, on a, on a movie about Now, uh, that's King. what I've heard. Yes. That's okay. what I've heard. I, I just saw Oliver last week. He didn't mention one word about that to me. Okay? So I don't know if it's true or not, or if it's just beginning right now. All right? So anyway, this is what the last part of the book is about. Okay? It's about this undiscovered territory that very, very few people know about. The other guy, of course, who we didn't mention yet, is a guy named Phil Strub. Phil Strub is the Pentagon liaison officer in Hollywood. And he's still there, okay? In fact, I think he'll always be there. Now, what his office does is it decides, okay, let's put it this way. Phil Straub has a monopoly. In a sense, he has total control over a product. What's the product? Military hardware. If you want to make a movie about the Air Force, about the Navy, about the Marines, about the Coast Guard, about the Army. You have to go to his office to get the materials. You can't rent those in Hollywood costume. You can't rent tanks. You can't rent bazookas. You can't rent, you know, uh, F-15 Tomcat fighters. You know, you have to go to the Pentagon, which means you have to go to Phil Strub. Now, does that mean he has script approval? Now, that, that's my next point. What does he want in return? And the answer is, he gets final cut of the screenplay. And he has the ability to write stuff out. He has the ability to turn you down. You have to go somewhere else to get the stuff. He has the ability to actually eliminate projects, okay? If he says no to your project and you can't find anybody else to give you the stuff, the project's dead. And by the way, that's actually happened once or twice, okay? You know? And, you know, that, that was really kind of shocking to me, you know, when I read this, how these movie makers kowtow to Phil Straub and Chase Brandon. You know, and what a mockery this makes out of artistic freedom. And I begin that chapter of the book, you know, with a, a quote from a guy in the TV, movie, uh, the TV business who said, and the quote goes something like this, Top Gun was the greatest recruitment infomercial the Navy ever had. The CIA wanted to do something like that. And that's where Chase Brandon entered the equation. All right? Now, I also have a chapter in there about Tom Hanks as a historian. I call it Hanks as a historian, a case study. This is about the movie Charlie Wilson's War. Again, I had never seen that movie or read that book until I did this book, all right? And so I went ahead and got the book by George Quayle. I then went ahead and bought the movie. And I have to say, 
Have you seen the movie, by the way? I have, and this is about a, a, a senator who, uh, you know, is able to raise uh, money and get arms to the Mujahideen who were fighting the Soviets uh, in Afghanistan in the in the late seventies. We, we oh, just about out. We just got about thirty seconds here, um, uh, James. Okay. So we got to sort of wrap it up. But listen. Um, we're going to have you back uh, next week, and we're going to sort of wrap up our, uh, our ongoing JFK series, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, Jim Garrison. And uh, okay. we'll, we'll go back to uh, uh, your book, Destiny Betrayed, which we've been sort of working our way through these past several months. Uh, appreciate your time, as always, James. But again, uh, Parkland re- Reclaimed. How do people get a hold of that? Reclaiming, Reclaiming Parkland. Parkland, you can get off Amazon.com, and it should be in most bookstores. Excellent. All right, till next week, James. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. James Eugenio. All right. You can say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, the website richardserrett.com, and as always, follow the truth. And if you're in uh, the conspiracy game, this is sort of like uh, our Christmas, really, and not to be too sort of morbid about it, but as we very quickly uh, wind down uh, and arrive at the fateful day, November 22nd, 1963, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and this program will be going, will drill down uh, extensively in the in the coming weeks. And I just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, of course, next week we'll continue on with our JFK uh, series with James D. Eugenio, assassination researcher. That'll be our final installment with James, uh, episode six of JFK: Connecting the Dots. And we'll take a look at the uh, uh, the uh, the life and times of Jim Garrison, of course, who is uh, central to the whole uh, JFK. Uh, story, and the uh, the follow that's next week. Uh, then the following week, we're going to dedicate the uh, the entire show uh, to JFK, which will be our final uh, be final, the final chance really before the uh, the anniversary. And we'll uh, we'll speak Mars. He'll be on the program, of course. Uh, Jim, the off crossfire. That was the book that sort of served as the. Uh, the basis of Oliver Stone's JFK, and Jim Maher has served as a consultant on the film. Uh, Jim is sort of the, the, one of the granddaddies of, uh, of conspiracy uh, theory and also certainly one of the uh, preeminent JFK researchers. So Jim Mars will be with us. Uh, our media scientist, uh, assassination researcher Nelson Thaw, will also uh, be with us. And uh, we're also working on lining up a few other uh, JFK researchers, including uh, Jim Fetzer. Uh, so that's next week. Uh, sorry, in, that's in two weeks. Uh, speaking of Nelson Thal, uh, he'll be with us at the bottom of the hour. Uh, we're uh, sort of instituting a brand new uh, segment on the show called State Secrets. And every two weeks, Nelson Thal will be with us at, uh, as I say, the bottom of the hour, uh, delivering sort of the news behind the headlines, if you will, and exposing State Secrets. So State Secrets Volume 1 coming up a little bit later. Uh, now, if you're like me, you're looking at the headlines and following not only what's happening uh, sort of in the news, but also in the business pages, it's kind of hard not to, uh, to lose faith. Uh, lose faith in the... Uh, in the, uh, the we have central bankers seeming, uh, seemingly running amok, uh, printing uh, $85 billion a month stateside to... Uh, to keep that economy sort of, I guess, just on the precipice uh, from collapsing. It seems to me what we have in the United States is an economy that's entirely addicted to that, uh, 
uh, quantitative easing, $85 billion a month, and of course the latest Fed FOMC meeting indicating that they're not going to be tapering anytime soon. Uh, every time they hint at a taper, of course, the, uh, the stock market craters. Uh, the question is, what happens when interest rates and inflation start to rise, and how will they possibly uh, you know, be able to keep a handle on a, a debt that's already spiraling out of control? Uh, so it, it really it gets to the very root of the question of you know, what is money? Where does it come from? And this is something that we've discussed uh, many times on the program. And of course, you've often heard a term on this show called fiat currency. Uh, and the idea that uh, essentially money being created out of thin air, but uh, it is created as debt and therefore can never be paid off. However, uh, my next guest, who's a researcher and blogger, uh, is going to talk to us about what he calls the suppressed history of successful government-issued interest-free currencies and local currencies from the 1700s all the way up until today and uh, has a lot of interesting things to say. In, in fact, a few of them, you know, we may actually part company. Uh, I, I'm, I, I think it's no secret I'm a bit of a gold bug myself. Uh, but Jason Erb uh, doesn't necessarily uh, look at gold the same way I do and some others. Uh, but Jason is actually going to be appearing at uh, Conspiracy Culture, our good friends Patrick and, and uh, Kadena, Conspiracy Culture down in uh, the east end of Toronto, or sorry, Queen Street, uh, Queen Street West, 1696 Queen Street West. He's going to be speaking there as part of a celebration of the ninth annual Usury Free Week, and usury, of course, being the lending or practice of lending money at an exorbitant interest. And uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome to the program Jason Erb. Hello, Jason. How are you? Great, Richard. Thank you very much for having me on the show. First of all, let's get a definition of what, what we mean by, uh, as I say, we've discussed it on the air, but let me get your definition of a fiat, a fiat currency or fiat money. It comes from the Latin word that means to be done. So it's actually referring to the sovereign going and issuing it. So it was later redefined to be something that was not backed up by precious metals, and some people would specifically tie it to gold and silver. But the original definition was by the sovereign, which meant the government, and even before that, it would the monarchs. So it would be the currency that would be issued, say, by the Bank of Canada, but it would not actually apply under that original definition to the Federal Reserve notes that are issued in the United States because those are issued by a privately owned central bank, even though there's the public component in terms of the Board of Governors and the Chairman, and they have the 12 different regional banks that were set up, but the member banks are all privately owned. Right. I've often, heard of, I've often heard of the Federal Reserve Bank that it's neither federal, it's not a reserve, and it's not a bank. But uh, talking about fiat currency, uh, my, I, I mean, is, it, is it fair to say that it's essentially it's a government IOU? That's the way that it is in terms of looking at the Canadian example. And even with the U.S., it's uh, backed up by the government essentially even though it's the private banks that issue it. But the way it is right now, it, it absolutely is an IOU. It's a promissory note, meaning that it's a promise to go and pay. And it's actually, unlike a regular promissory note, that the Federal Reserve notes, for instance, they're not redeemable in anything. Whereas most promissory notes that you write, you can go and uh, cash them in for something that, that's specified on the note. But these Federal Reserve notes, even though they're called notes, you cannot redeem them for anything. It's actually backed up by the production of the 
citizenry. And that's what I would say that money really should be based upon upon production and not actually on the value that is equated with something just based on a historical perception, like with gold, for instance. That's why some people say that only gold or silver can be money because of the historical value that has been placed upon it for such a long period of time where there has been at least some value. As it's been said, the, the value of gold and silver has never gone down to zero over 6,000 years, whereas you can look at particular government or privately issued currencies through the government where they have gone down to zero or the only value they retain was through was through the collector value. It's the same thing with certain numismatic coins as well. There's a collector value above the actual precious metal value. But the thing I would point there is it's when the issuance of the currency was not properly controlled, when there was too much currency that was issued to exceed the demand of that currency. Which is, essentially the, at, which is essentially what we have now, certainly in the United States, with this quantitative easing pumping $85 billion a month. Now, I realize, you know, they're, they're, they're buying sort of mortgage-backed securities, but essentially it's, the result is the same. And this is what I believe, and, and many of the sort of the uh, forecasters and so forth that I follow believe, is that this is the only thing that's keeping uh, the stock market, uh, you know, reaching these record highs. They, they are creating new bubbles which is what got us into the, 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 the asset bubbles, which is what got us into, the, into, into trouble back in, in 2008. And so instead of correcting the problem, they're just simply exacerbating it, creating more and more asset bubbles. Uh, I mean, what, 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 um, what is your sense? I mean, you, you coming at this from a, 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 an interesting perspective, and you believe that because there is this suppressed history of fiat currencies, there, there have been fiat currencies that you say have worked, have been successful, interest-free, uh, fiat currencies. Is that the well, idea? You look, you look back to the early part of the 1700s and you have the one colonial currency, the Pennsylvania pound, which Ellen Brown documents about how successful that was. That was in exception with some of the other colonial currencies, which were specifically cited out for having poor performance. But the thing that affected all those colonial currencies eventually was an act of the British parliament, which said that no new paper notes could be issued in one of the acts. And then also with the first one that came in, it also said that that those paper notes would no longer be valid for the settlement of private debts. So it's this power that's given through government of legal tender for the public in order to pay taxes. And another component is if there's the ability to use it to settle private debts where the government backs that up and forces that, that you can settle any debt with whatever currency it is, which in the U.S. it's the Federal Reserve notes, that that was taken away. So even though there were some currencies in the colonies where they were overissued through, they didn't have the proper controls, and then there could be issues of counterfeiting. But uh, the one thing that sunk the value of all of them, even the Pennsylvania pound, which was successful, was that external act through the British Parliament that said that they were no longer valid for the private settlement of the notes. And you look to the time of the Civil War. Now, this is a very misunderstood case whereby I find even the alternative media, it's not often discussed, is you had what are known as the United States notes, which are still in circulation today. And at one point, it accounted for nearly 14% of the total money supply, where it was just over, issued over a few years. And you had, this was to pay for the Civil War. They were issued interest-free. 
And even though there were associated bonds, so dead instruments that were you could redeem them into, but these underlying notes were interest-free. And like I said, they accounted for around 14% of the money supply at its height. And the thing about them is, is that it, it said about how because they were paper money that they failed, but it's been documented by someone who wrote during the late 1800s, Sarah Emery, she had pointed out that they traded at parity with gold. So whatever the value of gold was relative to these greenback dollars, that it was equal. And what happened was it was when they, several months later, they passed the exception clause, which specifically said that you could not use these greenbacks to pay back interest on the national debt or on the tariffs, which at that time, the tariffs accounted for the overwhelming majority of the revenue that came into the U.S. federal government. Right, this is before income tax, yes. Yes, so that really sunk the value then. And so in that case, it wasn't about that there was an over-issuance of them so much as it was that, again, like I talked about with the case of that act of the British Parliament saying that you could no longer use them for the private debts, because these greenbacks were also valid for settling private debts as well as the public debts. But then they specifically said you could not use them to pay the interest on the national debt. Now, the, one of the problems with, with, with fiat money, though, uh, as I see it, uh, Jason, is that, I mean, the minute that it's issued, it comes into being as debt. So how can you ever pay that off? The thing is, if you have a debt-based currency, just saying it's an obligation. So if the government issues it, then it's their obligation to maintain it. And if it gets destroyed, then they can issue new ones and, and then go and replace that value that was initially put out there. As we have now with the notes, if they if they go to circulation, they can be reissued. But the problem is that with if there's an over-issuance of the money... That's going to be a problem, but the thing isn't so much the actual paper notes themselves. It is the issuance of the currency itself, whether it exceeds the demand that's out there. All right, Jason, we've got to take a time out. We'll come back and continue to talk about uh, what Jason Erb describes as faux capitalism. We'll also talk about uh, gold, gold confiscation, what is legal tender, and uh, as much as we can cram into uh, the next 15 minutes or so. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Jason Erb will be uh, appearing at uh, Conspiracy Culture, 1696 Queen Street West, Saturday, November the 16th, from 7 to 9.30, as part of a celebration of the ninth annual Usury Free Week. And uh, he's here, I guess, in a sense, uh, Jason, you're uh, here in defense of, of, uh, of fiat currency and some of the misconceptions. Uh, and as I stated to you earlier, I'm a, I'm a bit of a gold wealth, a uh, gold bug rather. I think gold is, is genuine wealth. It is real money. Uh, I think it was a, a quote attributed to Voltaire who said, paper money eventually returns to its intrinsic value, zero. And I mean, throughout history, I don't think there's a paper currency that's ever survived in its original form. They're, you know, they're normally inflated away until they're basically worthless. And I think we're beginning to see at least the beginning of that with the U.S. dollar. It's sort of just barely hovering above 80 cents. And I've heard some su- suggest in the, uh, 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 you know, in the uh, financial papers that if it gets below 79 cents, it could, be in, it could go into free fall. Um, so with that in mind, I mean, how can we make fiat currency work? Well, I think... That's really important to focus on having diversification, just like with investments, that that money is supposed to primarily be a medium of exchange. So whether you're using that as gold, 
as your medium of exchange or whether you're using a government-issued currency, that I think it's important to diversify. So one of the big things is with local currencies, that that's an option outside of the whole government system. And also, like specifically focusing on the, the government-issued currencies, that it is true that there has never been any government-issued currency that has succeeded indefinitely. And that's the same thing with the governments themselves, because the ultimate thing that happens there is that there's a lack of confidence in terms of the ability of the government to be able to guarantee the value of that currency. But at times you have gold can severely plummet in value that you had gold in 1980 go from a high of 850 US dollars to below $250 by the year 2001. And so that was a really bad time of 21 years to be investing in gold in, in the long term during that particular case. But then on the other hand, that was a great time to be investing in other things. And although the U.S. dollar itself was going down in value because of it wasn't keeping up with the actual production that was taking place, you had the, the government spending that was beyond what was actually being put out there by the whole economy to to generate the kind of wealth to match up with the dollars that were being put out there. But relatively speaking, the whole fact that the gold went down relative to the dollar shows that in that case that the, the dollar was actually more valuable over that time period. So I think the important thing is just to look into that, yes, any government-issued currency is not going to last forever. But at the same time, there's a good time to be in gold as a micro-investment. And then there's other times to be invested in the dollar or assets that are tied to the dollar more so than gold. What I see the fiat currency now is, is it's a great, it's a sweet deal for the politicians, uh, in, particularly in, in the U.S. with the Federal Reserve and, and in Europe, where the central bankers are able to uh, essentially uh, print money uh, with virtually no discretion. And this allows uh, politicians uh, to spend, spend, spend without having to go to the taxpayer and say, well, if you want a new program, you know, we're going to have to tax you for it. Uh, if this money is simply being printed, uh, seemingly without end, uh, that's a pretty sweet deal for the politicians. And uh, so they've got a vested interest in that. Would you, what are your thoughts on, uh, on the, the Bank of Canada, for example, up here in Canada? Uh, the, the initial purpose of, the, of, the, of the, the Bank of Canada, my understanding was, that it was to, to be able to issue interest-free money. Uh, this is how the great the St. Lawrence Seaway was built. This is how we paid for the, the war effort uh, during the Second World War. This is how we paid for uh, many of our social programs uh, before sort of the fundamental purpose of the Bank of Canada was changed some, somewhere in the late – or I, I guess the mid-70s. Let's talk about, about the Bank of Canada and, and your thoughts on that. One of the big things holding back the Bank of Canada from doing what you suggested is its membership in the nearly 60-member privately owned Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland. And so that's the central bank for the central bankers. And they have different plans in place whereby one of them that Canada had acceded to was that you cannot, like you were talking about in the 1970s since then, that you cannot go and borrow from your own bank and especially not interest-free. So at least in terms of having the money directly borrowed and then not having any interest associated with that. Now, as I found out, that about 5% of the, the money then that the, the Canadian government 
is going in and borrowing, it's effectively interest-free because the government of Canada is the sole shareholder of the Bank of Canada. Unlike in the United States where it's all privately owned banks and they take their 6% cut based on their dividend and then the rest of the money is returned to the taxpayer. But the majority of, just like in Canada and the United States, the majority of the money that is lent is through the private banks and that money is not returned to the taxpayer. But it was about 5% is is directly returned through that the, the bank goes and buys up the the Canadian bonds. And then so since the Canadian government is the shareholder of the bank, then therefore the government gets back that money, but it's restricted to 5% and it's not direct. So because of the Bank for International Settlement, the rules that we've gotten ourselves into in Canada and the United States is under the same thing as well, is that that according to those rules, we cannot go and borrow directly from the bank at no interest. And that is really the issue. What happens is that the Bank of Canada has to go and sell those bonds on the open market. And it just so happens rather the government has to and it just so happens that the bank of canada is purchasing like i said in, in the case of five percent of the total money that the canadian government is spending but th this is a big thing is that you look at the whole debt chart and it, it just skyrocketed so much since the 1970s and people would talk about how trudeau was a big factor of that but really the big factor is some some researchers have pointed out is it has absolutely to do with that canada cannot under these restrictions that has placed itself under go and borrow directly from the Bank of Canada with no interest. Well, this did happen under Trudeau's watch. I believe it was 1974 uh, when, you know, as you say, the Canadian government was forced to go cap in hand to the international international lenders. And if you look at our debt, which is uh, roughly $600 billion, something like 98% of that is attributed to the compound interest um, on on uh, you know these loans from international uh, from uh, you know the international money lenders, how do we break out of this? Well, I think one way is that that Canada sh could pull out of the Bank for International Settlements. There's absolutely nothing keeping it in there except for being a small country compared to the United States. It'd be very difficult to resist the pressure. I actually heard uh, one of the leaders of the of uh, one of the Canadian parties actually kind of hint at the fact that if Canada did pull out of the Bank for International Settlements that there'd possibly be some sort of conflagration then that would be started up with some military exercise and that that's kind of at the extreme end of possibilities but that is really it's up to the people to be first informed of these issues like we're talking about tonight and then to raise discussion about these issues. But I think the big thing that'll drive change is these local currencies that are popping up, that there's a, one of the, actually the organizer of this whole usury free conference, like along with Patrick of conspiracy culture is Tom J. Kennedy, who actually started his own local usury free currency. Yeah. Let's talk about how does that work? How does that work exactly? How do you start your own local currency? In some ways it's very easy is that, you just go and create notes. In most cases, the actual paper notes that, that are created so that the customers can go and redeem them at the businesses. And it's a matter of the local entrepreneurs going and finding businesses who are willing to exchange in these notes. And then like Tom Kennedy was telling me that he doesn't suggest that the businesses go and take 100% of the full value of the product in 
this local currency, but say something like five to 10% of it. And so that way they can feel safe in, in being introduced to it of still receiving 90% of the total value of the product in the Canadian dollars or in the US be the US dollars. And then up to 10% they could take with this local currency. So it'd just be a matter of the entrepreneur goes and creates these notes and then it would be done through contracts. So that you could have it through contracts so the government could enforce it, that you could agree with the business owners that a certain amount of money will be printed. And then if it was ever found out that you were going and violating that, it wouldn't be considered counterfeiting of the official currency, but it would be the case of you violated your contract and that could be, you could be held accountable in the civil courts. But what they found is there's this very specific example of the mountain hours in Colorado where the founder there, Wayne Walton, has had amazing success in the United States. I would say he's the number one person behind the local currency movement in terms of the demonstrated success of the actual local currencies, usury free in action, where he's up to, in, in his particular community of Summit County in Colorado, that he's had, he mentioned about, this was over a year ago when I talked to the details, but it was $45,000 that he had in circulation with with dozens and dozens of businesses just in that particular area and he didn't even need to have a contract with them they were all trading this currency usury free so the only thing would be it would be an exact exchange of value the specified value there wouldn't be any interest attached to it and then people could go and lend out that money as well but there's like a whole buy-in within the community realizing the problems with usury and therefore he didn't even have it in the contract but they wouldn't so far they haven't actually lent out that money with any usury, but that is something that could be placed in the contracts of anyone participating in it. But this is the great thing is that there's no counterfeiting whatsoever. And also, it's it's actually really easy as long as you don't go and do what happened with the Liberty dollar in the U.S. It was There was gold and silver coins in that case, but the problem was calling it the Liberty dollar, associating it with the dollar. And this is how they went and got the founder in other in other ways too but this is one of the ways that they got them on counterfeiting so if you just call this a local currency this is something that you can completely create legally and there are people there are these great resources out there that can start you up with one of these currencies and to be able to get involved in using these currencies to find out if you have them in your local community. What about the argument, uh, uh, Jason, that uh, for, let, let's take a look at the the fractional reserve banking uh, system, which basically means, you know, uh, once the, uh, let's say the Federal Reserve orders the Treasury to print up a uh, billion dollars, it's all done electronically, of course, but that, you know, some of that billion dollars ends up in some charter banks, and then they're allowed to, they don't have to have have, uh, you know, the exact amount on reserve, they can lend out that many times over, which is why, you know, they fear a rush on the bank. If everyone goes to the bank looking for their money, it's not there. It's been lent out many, many, many times. That's sort of the, a very simple explanation of fractional reserve banking. But without fractional reserve banking, without expanding that credit, uh, one might argue that for the United States, for example, wouldn't have been able to do many of the things that, that they accomplished, uh, like you know building the Erie Canal or or paying for uh, you know the defense of the nation and so forth. Without being able to expand credit, which fractional reserve banking allows you to do, you know where would be uh, where, where would we be? I mean, much of the wealth was created because of that. 
The Great Depression in the United States illustrated a great example is you actually had 40% backing of the money supply with gold. And so therefore it was a fractional reserve banking and specifically tied to gold. And that did not stop the nearly 5,000 bank panics that occurred where there were bankruptcies of the actual banks. And the specific issue there was that when for every $2 that people would redeem they would say, I want this back in gold. They would have to call back the other $3 because of the fraction there. There wasn't the full amount. So that is even the problem if you have gold backing. That's the problem with fractional reserve banking. I would say what the fractional reserve banking caused was specifically led to the Great Depression. There were other factors as well. But that was what it leads to is these super cycles where you have this great expansion of the credit, the roaring 20s, but then you have this great collapse that happened during the Great Depression and then specifically it was gone off the gold standard at that time where and then there was gold was specifically confiscated from the people but then on the other hand I would say there's a problem with if you had full reserve banking but if you had it backed by gold by government saying that a hundred percent of that you could have these paper notes or the numbers in a computer and that you could exchange dollar for dollar the, the equivalent value in gold, whatever the government says it is. And the problem there is that so long as you have usury, so long as you have any amount of interest, especially compound interest, it's a ticking time bomb where there will eventually be more demands on the money than the actual money that is out there. Well, that's a to- problem. There's no, uh, enough, the, only, the amount of gold that's been mined uh, throughout history is enough to fill only two Olympic swimming pools. So uh, gold is certainly finite. Uh, listen, uh, sadly, we're, uh, we're out of time. Uh, just want to again mention, Jason, that you'll be at Conspiracy Culture Saturday, Saturday, November the 16th, 7 to 9.30. It's part of the Usury-Free Network. Uh, and um, if people want to get details on, on how to attend or get tickets, they can go to the website conspiracyculture.com. Jason, thanks for your time. Thank you, Richard. All right, when we come back, a brand new segment, State Secrets with Nelson Thal. Welcome back. In, in just a few moments, we're going to open up the, uh, the telephone lines, and the last uh, 15 minutes uh, or so of the broadcast will be open lines. So if you'd like to talk about anything you've heard on the program uh, recently, uh, now is your time. We don't get an opportunity uh, to do an open line segment very often, and this is it. So uh, you can start calling in now if you want to talk about, uh, well, as we approach the uh, 50th anniversary of JFK, if you want to talk about that, uh, if you want to talk about uh, some recent guests uh, and things that they've had to say then uh, it is your opportunity to do so. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, for just a few moments, we're uh, introducing a brand new segment on the show called State Secrets. This will be Volume 1, and it's uh, a bi-monthly report uh, which will expose high crimes and state secrets and deliver the news that the mainstream media won't touch. Uh, and here to do so is uh, Nelson Thull, who was deputized by Jim Garrison, Pierre Salinger, Penn Jones, and Sherman Skolnick to continue on the trail of the assassins of President John F. Kennedy and other high crimes by those same people who succeeded in this 1963 coup d'etat. Nelson was named the McLuhan Archivist by the Marshall McLuhan Center after McLuhan's death in 1980. And uh, here we go with our first installment of State Secrets. Nelson, how are you? 
Great. It's great being here. Looking forward to this little quick segment. Well, listen, I want to start off with, you know, people uh, uh, always complain about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. And it's the same thing with chemtrails. People talk about, I get pictures being sent to me all the time uh, of chemtrail, major chemtrail activity. And uh, and yet now, finally, we have someone who's actually doing something about us. Tell, and it's a Canadian, uh, no less. Tell us about this Canadian uh, who's uh, trying to stop chemtrails in their tracks. Well, he feels that by going to the um, to the uh, to the courts that he's going to be able to try and do something. Uh, but Richard, the thing is this: that we know more and more that backstage, the state secret that's leaking out from the intel apparatus is that uh, they're trying to do something to control the amount of heat that has been retained within the the atmosphere. And so, what they're trying to do is they're trying to spray. Uh, mostly particulates to reflect the sunlight, which is what really it appears mostly. And whether people die from the little particles, I mean, they're not worried. And this man's trying to get some of the health, uh, the health, uh, some of the courts to look at the health side of it. But I really don't think it's going to get much. It's going to fly very far. Do you? Well, uh, hard to say. I mean, at least someone's taking that that first step. And uh, as you say, these aluminum particulates that they're, I guess, uh, you know, this is a last-ditch effort to stave off what they see as, you know, global warming and reflect the sun's rays back into the atmosphere. But uh, aluminum has been uh, tied to uh, everything from uh, Alzheimer's to uh, upper respiratory disease, uh, even to uh, to heart heart attack and stroke, I believe. So I say good luck to him. Listen, I want to ask you about this, uh, you know, the rumor mill... Uh, on high speed right now, uh, and that is that the U.S. feds are are prepping for some sort of a major natural disaster. Uh, and uh, I guess the question is, you know, what is it and what are they keeping from us and why are they keeping it from us? What are you hearing about uh, whether the government might be prepping for a, na- a natural disaster that we don't know about? Well, once again, we don't have to, as archivists, go too far because Janet Napolitano in August of this year when she stepped, uh, gave a final uh, speech, said that uh, she described that there, we were due for a massive cyber attack and the U.S. Homeland uh, Security was gauging for a major natural disaster and other major disaster. Okay. You don't have to go far. It's fun. I'm sorry? No, no. So, so uh, they're talking yeah, about so a, a cyber attack. So her public statement was a literal warning um, of that the government has the knowledge and is aware of and is keeping from the people the fact that there are some major big attacks coming. And she went public and said it. But it's but the media, even when they cover it, it just gets lost amongst the bread and circus shows, which is why we sort of want to identify here at this little news point of state secrets, some of these items that are there that just go by and don't get picked up. Well, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, looming disasters. Uh, there's talk that the, um, and this came from the food bank uh, CEO uh, this month, warning in the U.S. of riots over major food stamp cuts, which are supposed to take effect uh, in November. They're going to reduce them by something like $5 billion starting, starting this month. And so the average benefit's going to shrink and the overall number of people receiving it is going to diminish by millions. And uh, again, the CEO of America's largest food bank says this is going to end in riots in the United States. Yeah, and um, there's no doubt that that we we've been watching. This is, I mean, very biblical. The the uh, the black horse and the famine, 
and the famines that have been reported by the IMF as well. The IMF reported that, uh, that uh, and there's been famines in Africa, and the IMF and the UN have been warning for many years that it's coming here to North America, but they don't seem to heed the warnings that are given out. All right. Well, Nelson, listen, uh, time goes uh, quickly. We'll, um, we'll pick this up again in two weeks, State Secrets Volume 2. And in the meantime, uh, you'll be on the program in a couple of weeks as we uh, uh, drill down one last time on uh, JFK before the big anniversary date. Looking forward to that as well. Yeah, there's a lot of stories. It's too bad we don't have time to go through them all now, but we'll look forward to doing the JFK show and getting into some of the things that nobody yet has discussed. All right, Nelson Thal's uh, State Secrets here on The Conspiracy Show. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Open Lines coming up. Hey, welcome back. And uh, as I said, Open Lines now until we dim the lights here and say goodnight for another uh, installment of The Conspiracy Show. Uh, So if you've got uh, uh, questions, comments, we can do... A little uh, paranormal segment as well. If uh, something I used to call uh, raising the hackles on the back of your neck, uh, if you've got a, an encounter with the paranormal you'd like to share, we can discuss that as well. Hair raising tales. Uh, but if you'd like to talk about uh, JFK, or uh, recently we spoke with uh, Jason Erb, who's going to be part of this usury free week, if you'd like to talk about. Uh, local, uh, you know, instituting some sort of a local currency and you think that would work or a barter system? I mean, there have been proposals uh, for that. I mean, what do you think is in store for us in terms of the economy? Uh, I'm certainly uh, very concerned and um, I'm certainly certainly taking my cues from what's happening down in the United States and uh, looking at the dollar very closely and the debt and, uh, of course, the debt ceiling and uh, keeping in mind the... uh, uh, the uh, the Chinese hold something like $1.3 trillion in U.S. debt instruments. They are the largest holder of U.S. debt, and they're not buying anymore. They're not buying any more U.S. treasuries. Uh, the only institution that's buying U.S. treasuries is the Fed. That's what this whole quantitative easing is all about, $85, $85 billion a month. And the question is, how long can this charade, this Ponzi scheme continue uh, before the House of Cards comes crashing down. And unfortunately, you know, with, with uh, the United States being our major trading partner, how long would it be before we go down with it? Down with the sinking ship? Which is perhaps why our Prime Minister has been so busy the last couple of years racing around trying to ink these trade deals with uh, uh, Europe and, uh, and Asia and so forth, trying to diversify. I'm not sure how successful that's going to be. But when you've got the U.S. dollar, again, uh, last week it was it dipped below 80 cents. It's, a, it's kind of a psychological uh, boundary. But once it gets below uh, 80 cents, a lot of the uh, forecasters start to watch that dollar very closely. And, and I've, I've read a number of them say that if it gets below 79, it could go into free fall. That would cause a catastrophic event across the world. That would just be a black swan to end all black swans. Are you concerned about that? And if so, what precautions are you taking? Do you own gold? I've stated on the program many times, I'm a gold bug, but gold is not performing the way it should be. Uh, and there are, I, th- I think there's a lot of credible evidence that the reason for that is being manipulated. It's being manipulated in the paper market at the behest, perhaps, of the Fed, 
using their bullion banks and their agents to drive the price of gold down because when gold goes up, that's an indication to people that there's something terribly wrong with the economy. And when gold goes up, that means the dollar goes down. So in order to prop up the U.S. dollar, there's some hanky-panky going on backstage in terms of manipulating the price of gold. However, we can also talk about uh, JFK, and as we approach the, uh, the 50th anniversary, and of course there's a lot of noise out there uh, regarding you know, what actually happened on uh, Daily Plaza, November 22nd, 1963. Hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. Let me just do sort of a, a quick sounding here. And how do you feel 50 years later? Whether you were around uh, then and remember the incident or not, or maybe you're just, you've seen the movie, the JFK movie. There was an old uh, joke, I think it was Dennis Miller, uh, said that uh, when he asks people, where were you when JFK was shot, they think he's talking about the movie. Where were you when Oliver Stone shot JFK? But has your... Has your opinion changed over the last 10, 20 years as to uh, Oswald's guilt? I believe the latest poll that I've seen, something like 75% of Americans, it may be higher now, 75%, let's say North Americans, believe that Oswald was not responsible or did not act alone, or you sort of lump all of these theories into, 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 this, uh, into this polling number. Uh, let's just say, put it this way, more than 75% of North Americans do not believe the official version in its entirety. Where do, you, where do you weigh in on that? If you believe Oswald did not act alone, if you believe that he may have pulled the trigger, but, he, but there was a second gunman, that is the definition of a conspiracy. Either he acted alone, or if there were others involved, then you have a conspiracy. Something that, uh, that uh, recently I learned, and there was a, a program on the History Channel uh, talking about the JFK assassination. It was playing tonight, actually. And that is uh, that if you remember the, uh, the, um, the footage, the Zapruder film, and, uh, of course, Jackie O and... Uh, Jackie uh, Kennedy, rather, in the, uh, in the back of the limo, and uh, the, um, her, her pink hat uh, blowing off her head. And, of course, she's that, that famous scene where uh, she's crawling over the, uh, the, the back uh, of the car. Some people think she was trying to retrieve her hat. Or others say, no, she was actually trying to, it's kind of morbid, but pick up pieces of Kennedy's brain after the fatal head wound. Um, but think about that hat blowing off. So the, the wind, they're driving into the wind. Now, two cars back, following the Secret Service uh, car, two cars back is President or Vice President Johnson. In the car with President Johnson was Senator Yarborough. Yarborough made a very interesting statement several years after the assassination. And this was a, uh, I believe he was a decorated uh, war hero, knew a little bit uh, about uh, armaments, guns. And he said, you know, it was strange. After I heard the shots, I smelt gunpowder. 
I smelled gun smoke. I, and and uh, he said, the wind was blowing into our face. He said, there is no way we would have smelled gunpowder gun if the shots came from the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository Building. The only way you're going to smell gunpowder is if you're downwind from it, which means, obviously, by extension, the shots did not come from the sixth floor. They came downwind, perhaps the grassy knoll, perhaps under the, uh, the underpass. Yarborough wasn't the only one who smelt gunpowder. Uh, gun Elizabeth Cabell, the wife of Dallas mayor at the time, Cabell, she also commented, Immediately after hearing the gunfire, she smelled gunpowder. Again, keeping in mind, think of Jackie's hat blowing off as they're driving into the wind. They're downwind from it. You're not going to smell gunpowder if it's behind you, coming from the sixth floor. All right, uh, let's say hello to, is it Darlene? Hello, Darlene, welcome. Hi. I just wonder, are you going to do another uh, show on the M6 paranormal crash? Oh, yes. Uh, we did that a couple of months ago. That was a, a fascinating uh, story. Uh, a British, uh, I believe it was Colin Andrews is his name, I wrote this book about the M6 crash, that, and there was a similar crash in Paris uh, where people who were at the scene reported these uh, cars at the front of the, the crash uh, that had I guess, uh, struck a, well, a no, truck or something, no were completely empty. Nobody in the car, no blood. Uh, and he was suggesting, I think, that uh, perhaps the, the occupants of the car were time travelers or, or something. I mean, how else did they evade the carnage? Uh, what, what, do you, what do you know about the M6 crash, darling? Basically, it was the um, first time I ever heard about it. And um, he also mentioned that there was no footage. There's, usually there's... Um, cameras showing vehicles and there was no footage all the footage was taken out yes showing the actual crash that's right and 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 uh, uh, people that were uh, behind the crash scene but driving along the m6 reported that at about the time of the crash there was this flash of white light and as you say uh, none of the um, uh, the the, uh, the video cameras along the m6 but were you operating can't find you you can't find any of the investigators either. They they've kind of um, they're they're quiet. Like they, you don't hear anything else. Only that, and it's just kind of um, disappeared. The story's disappeared. Um, I also wondered if you uh, were going to do anything on Michael Hastings. Ah, um, yes. This was the um, the the investigative reporter that um, supposedly died in a car crash. Uh, yeah. But there are suggestions that he was, uh, let's say, taken out by some intelligence agency. Uh, I haven't done a program on that. Uh, I mean, uh, unless I've, is there anything uh, new to report on that that I've missed, Darling? Um, they said he was going 35 miles an hour, not speeding. And um, they did a few reconstructive things. They said um, that the fire was too large to be uh, a normal car fire. And that was, and of course, all the, um, they did di some diagrams on the actual scene. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 uh, the question is, you know, who killed Michael Hastings if in fact he was murdered and, and, uh, and why? Uh, and as you say, there are some strange uh, circumstances surrounding his... Um, 
his death. For the M6 paranormal, they've, they've never actually shown the investigator. There's a Roger, um, um, can't remember his last name, but he's the um, investigator. They've never shown any information about him either. Hmm. Now, now um, I'm trying to remember what Hastings was supposedly investigating. I know he was doing some work for Rolling Stone magazine, and uh, it had something to do with, um, was it the U.S.'s counterinsurgency um, a strategy in Afghanistan and, and um, somehow tied in with U.S. General McChrystal at the time? Uh, that was an older story about two years prior. He was working on five news stories, they said. Hmm. But uh, he apparently didn't want to drive his own vehicle that night. Yeah, slammed into a palm tree, as I recall. It burst into flames. Uh, that's where it's strange. They said, actually, that's not... It was the way the car moved into the tree. That was odd. Yeah, it, it, it supposedly accelerated rapidly. Breeze. Actually, it didn't. It actually kind of coasted into it. Hmm. It's, it was, it's a very strange accident, anyway. Well, there are certainly a lot of those. Um, it, they do show diagrams, and it was uh, very odd. Well, uh, I believe it was a um, um, Michael Shrimpton, if I'm remembering correctly, who was the uh, sort of the attorney for MI6 in Britain, who said that uh, you know he had it on good authority that, that was sort of the favorite method of assassination for a lot of these intelligence groups uh, is 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 the car crash because they're so common. Uh, and and people just take it for granted that yeah well people die in car crashes all the time. Listen, I appreciate your call, uh, Darlene. Yep. Thank you for this. Mm. Okay, thank you. All right, just a few moments uh, remaining before we turn on the lights. I think we'll have time for one more call if you get in now. And uh, just a reminder: coming up next week on the program, uh, it'll be our final installment of our JFK series with James D. Eugenio. Uh, however. Uh, that'll be episode eight, as we've sort of been working our way through his book, Destiny Betrayed. Uh, but the following week, which will be sort of our last show before the anniversary date, uh, the 50th anniversary of JFK, JFK's assassination, uh, we'll have uh, Nelson Thalback on the program and also uh, Jim Mars, whose uh, book Crossfire served as sort of the basis for Oliver Stone's JFK and uh, also uh, looking to have uh, Jim Fetzer on the program as well, another one of the preeminent JFK assassination researchers. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to uh, Tim Spreen for technical production. Thank you. Back next week, as I say. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.